Trident co-eds at Florida State University in Tallahassee walked a class in groups today while detectives tried to track a man who slipped into a sorority house early yesterday and murdered two women. That double murder was the work of Theodore Robert Bundy, who in January 1978 got off a bus in Tallahassee, roughly 1,800 miles away from the jail from which he had escaped. He stole a person's identity. Then he stole a van and some credit cards. Along the way, he terrorized northern Florida much the same way he had terrorized Seattle a few years earlier. The story of everything Ted Bundy did after his arrival in Florida is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. This week's episode will be part two of the story of serial killer Ted Bundy, who escaped from a jail in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, where he was awaiting trial for murder and turned up in the Florida panhandle. Bundy slaughtered three victims and severely injured three more during a four-week span. Five of the victims were Florida State University co-eds, while his sixth victim was a middle school student in Lake City. Bundy would be captured in Pensacola, and less than 11 years later, he would be executed. My guests for that segment will be former state attorney John Tanner, who counseled Bundy while he was on death row. You'll also hear from Ocala Star Banner reporter Joe Callahan, who covered Bundy's execution 30 years ago. Very innovative and very opportunistic, and, and, and you know, the way he preyed upon women, he was innovative and opportunistic. Uh, you know, pretending to be someone with an injured arm, uh, pretending to be what he wasn't to to uh, lure unsuspecting uh, young women into his uh, into his trap. Ted Bundy was opportunistic and cunning, and was consumed with a rare form of evil. He didn't waste time lingering in one place whenever he suspected law enforcement was closing in on him, and he didn't pass on opportunities to escape custody, and when he locked in on a victim, he knew how to disarm them and charm them before savagely killing them. You just heard from John Tanner, a former prosecutor who got to know Bundy, but not the usual way a prosecutor gets to know a killer. Tanner and his wife visited Bundy with the intent to help him. You'll hear a lot more from Tanner later in this podcast. As I mentioned last week, Ted Bundy plotted out his escape from the Aspen Courthouse in June 1977, as well as his more ambitious escape six months later, while housed at the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs. While in jail in Garfield County, Bundy who basked in media attention, called a reporter in Seattle, someone who had done numerous stories about Bundy's killings and court cases. He reached out to that reporter days before his last escape. He told that reporter that he intended to watch the Washington Huskies compete in the upcoming Rose Bowl against the Michigan Wolverines, and he did not plan to watch it from jail. 
His trial date for the 1975 slaying of Karen Campbell was scheduled to begin January 9th, 1978. Ten days earlier, on New Year's Eve, 1977, he stacked some of his law books on his bed, pulled the covers over the stacks to make it look like someone was sleeping in it, and then he squeezed through a hole in the ceiling of his jail cell, one that he had secretively carved out with a makeshift saw. Bundy had lost enough weight to get through that hole. All that complaining about prison food was just a ruse. He refused to eat because losing weight would benefit his escape. He knew what he was doing. He gained access to the apartment that was in the same building as the jail. It was occupied by the head jailer and his wife. While they were home, Bundy remained still, lying in an area above the ceiling until the coast was clear. The couple went out to dinner and a movie that night. It was another random stroke of luck for Bundy. After they left, Bundy crawled into their apartment. He stole some of the jailer's clothes and walked out the front door. Bundy stole a car, which died on him. Then he hitchhiked to a bus station in Vail, which was about 60 miles east of the jail. He boarded a bus at 4 a.m. to Denver, which was another 100 miles east. He got there around 8 a.m., and still the guards had not noticed Bundy was missing. Bundy took a cab to the airport and boarded a flight to Chicago. He was in Chicago by 11 a.m., and still no one at the Garfield County Jail realized Bundy was gone. It wasn't unusual for him to stay in his cell and skip breakfast. Everyone in that jail thought Bundy was avoiding the food because it was making him ill. It wasn't until lunchtime when a guard walked to Bundy's cell, noticed the breakfast tray untouched, entered the cell, and pulled back the covers before anyone there realized Bundy was missing. It wasn't just any inmate who had gone missing. It was Ted Bundy a prolific killer of women. And it wasn't the first time he had slipped out of sight, but this time he had a 17-hour head start. Things were about to get uncomfortable in Garfield County for its massive snafu, but things were about to get far worse for a lot more people in Florida. Bundy took his time because he could afford to. As it turned out, he actually did watch the Rose Bowl. He watched it on January 2nd from a bar in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He got to Ann Arbor by train from Chicago. After his stay in Ann Arbor, Bundy stole another car and drove it to Atlanta, where he bought a bus ticket to Tallahassee. He settled in at an apartment building called The Oak, which was a short distance from the Florida State campus. Tallahassee, Florida seemed so random, but Bundy wanted to venture out as far away as he could from the places he had been. He felt Florida was a place where he could hide in plain sight. Here again is John Tanner. You know, Florida's not a bad place to hang out, and it's full of strangers and tourists. So it's certainly an easier place to blend in than, let's say, Minnesota. Several books have been written about Ted Bundy. But perhaps the most famous one was penned by well-known true crime author Anne Rule, who personally knew Bundy. Her book, A Stranger Beside Me, became her first and most famous nonfiction book. 
Rule wrote that Bundy intended to be completely and utterly law-abiding after his relocation to Florida. Bundy's intention was to remain under the radar, put an end to his evil ways, and just be a regular guy with a regular job. He needed a new name, so he went through the records of graduates. He settled on the name Kenneth Meisner. For that name, he acquired a driver's license and other identification. Bundy's days during that first week in Florida were uneventful. He enjoyed his freedom. He would come and go as he pleased. He could buy a hot meal, grab some beer, come home and drink it in the privacy of his own home. But the money Bundy had remaining after he paid his rent at the Oaks was dwindling. He resorted to theft. It was a trade he knew well. He got caught stealing at least twice during his youth. While in Tallahassee, he stole a bicycle. He stole a television. He would later steal two vehicles while in Florida. Bundy was suddenly a nobody, a narcissist to the core. He wasn't about to go long without drawing attention to himself. There was also one other problem. He couldn't bottle up his urge to kill. A few blocks from Bundy's apartment was the Chi Omega sorority house. 39 students lived in that house. Among those who stayed there were FSU students Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler. Here they are telling ABC's 2020 what life was like at the sorority house. I had joined the sorority Chi Omega. Living at Chi O, my parents felt, was much safer than to live in the dormitory. Being in Chi Omega was a wonderful part of my life. It was just like living with 40 friends. On the morning of January 15th, the Chi Omega house was the polar opposite of safe. Between 3 and 3.15 a.m., Bundy entered the house. He was carrying a wooden club, a thick piece of firewood that he had found on the property. Nita Neary was one of the women inside the Chi Omega home. She had come inside not long after Bundy. She was turning off all the lights in the rec room and heard what sounded like thumps. After the first thump, she thought someone had stumbled and didn't think too much of it. But she heard other noises that spooked her. They were coming from upstairs. She heard running footsteps. She headed toward the doorway leading to the foyer. She was hidden from anyone walking down the steps toward the front door. From her vantage point, she saw a man. He was wearing a dark jacket and a knitted cap, navy in color. She saw the man's profile. She noticed he had a sharp nose. The man grabbed a doorknob with his left hand. His right hand was still clutching that club. Neary also observed that the end of the club that the intruder was holding appeared to be covered with some type of cloth. In a matter of seconds, the man was gone. Neary assumed the man was an intruder, but thought maybe he was there to steal something. She ran upstairs and woke up her roommate. The two women didn't know what to do. They searched the downstairs first, and then they went back upstairs to see whether anything was taken. That's when they encountered Karen Chandler. She was staggering around. Then they saw her head was covered in blood. Chandler's roommate, Kathy Kleiner, also had suffered a significant head wound. 
Both females were in bad shape. They were speaking unintelligently. They had broken jaws, broken teeth, and skull fractures. Neary's roommate called 911. She was hysterical, so the operator could barely understand her. Police, who were only two blocks from the Chi Omega house on West Jefferson Street, rushed to the scene. They thought two women were injured following a fight over a boyfriend. That's how they received the call. It was something far worse than that. Two Tallahassee police officers, two FSU police officers, and some paramedics showed up. They were about to be shocked. Chandler was the first victim they encountered. Here she is describing to 2020 her injuries. Pretty much every bone in my face was broken. My front teeth um, were mostly gone. Then they saw Kleiner, whose injuries were even more extensive. I remember then laying on my bed and trying to talk, and I couldn't make any noise because my jaw was broken in three places. Police learned that both Kleiner and Chandler had been fast asleep when they were attacked. By the time all the police officers and paramedics entered the house, mostly everyone in the house had awakened. The co-eds were ushered into one room. Neary was outside talking to a couple of police officers. She gave them the best description of the intruder she could give, but it wasn't much. One of the campus police officers, Ray Crew, entered one of the rooms in the house. 20-year-old Lisa Levy lived in that room. He called out to her. He shook her. Then he turned her over. He saw blood. Levy was beaten, strangled, and raped. She also had bite marks on her. Levy was loaded into an ambulance, but she was pronounced dead before she reached the hospital. She was likely dead before she was even pulled off the bed by paramedics, who desperately tried to save her. By the time Levy's body was en route to the hospital, everyone in the sorority house was accounted for, except for one, 21-year-old Margaret Elizabeth Bowman. One of the police officers entered her room and turned on the light. The moment he noticed blood on the pillow, he shut the door so that the other tenants couldn't see. Bowman's skull had been shattered. A nylon stocking was still around her neck. Whoever had strangled her had done it with so much force that her neck looked broken. That's what the police officer observed. Just like in the other rooms where the beatings took place, there was bark everywhere. The heavy logs struck each victim with so much force that every blow caused pieces of bark to spray throughout the room. Bowman like the others, was asleep when she was struck. No one in the house other than Nita Neary had seen anything. All that carnage in one house and everyone who was already in bed, who wasn't attacked, heard nothing. According to Anne Rule's book, one of the sorority girls was in the second floor bathroom, the one that everyone on that floor used, brushing her teeth while the killer walked down the hall toward the stairs. She literally missed confronting the killer by mere seconds. Nita Neary's description of the man she saw inside the sorority house that morning would be important evidence at Bundy's trial. Here she is describing to jurors the man she saw. 
Could you describe the man that you saw at the door? Yes, he had a very prominent nose, uh, a straight bridge that almost came to a point, not quite, uh, very thin lips, um, clean shaven. I commented earlier that nice looking almost, if you want. The rear door had been broken. It is believed that Bundy entered the house through the rear, attacked his first victim, and waited in her room for others to come home. Or perhaps just waited for those in the house to be quiet and still before he attacked his next victim. Both bodies were removed from the house, and the two women who were critically injured were rushed to the hospital. By then, deputies from the Leon County Sheriff's Office showed up, so officers from three local law enforcement agencies were at the scene. Meanwhile, another call came into the communications center. An FSU student four blocks away sounded as though she was in distress. A neighbor who lived in the same duplex heard banging coming from inside the home of Cheryl Thomas, a 21-year-old dance major. That same neighbor later heard some moaning. Then she called Thomas on her phone. She could hear the ringing through the thin walls of Thomas's home, but Thomas didn't answer. The neighbor hung up and called 911. Retired Leon County Sheriff Ken Katsaris was interviewed extensively during a four-part docu-series on Ted Bundy that was released last month on Netflix. Here he is describing his reaction when he got the call from dispatch that another female may have been attacked the same way as the girls in the Chi Omega house. That same night, while I was outside, we got a call that crackled on my radio and said there are some real unusual noises coming from a duplex. The neighbor next door is calling in and saying, it sounds like somebody is really being beat up. And I said, could it be? Is it possible? Could the same person have gone to another location? I said, no. In all my studies of criminology, crime, criminals, and their methods, they do something like this. They're on the lam. They're gone. They don't want to be around. They're certainly not going to commit another crime. Here is Thomas describing what happened to her. I learned that he came in through my kitchen window. He had worn a hose over his face. He pulled that off, and that was dropped on my floor. If I did not have my neighbors calling, I don't think I would have survived. The reports of the attacks in Tallahassee made national news. Nobody in Florida had any idea who Ted Bundy was. They hadn't heard of him. But someone on the West Coast, after seeing the news about the slangs near FSU, reached out to the sheriff in Leon County. I was leaving the sorority house, driving and I got a, a call over the radio that there's an investigator that wants to talk to me from out west. I talked to the investigator and I wrote down a name that he gave me that he thought maybe I should look into. That name was Ted Bundy. Katsaris noticed something when he went to the morgue to look at the bodies of the deceased. He noticed something on Levy's body. He saw those bite marks on her. When I was at the morgue and I looked at the bodies, on 
Lisa Levy, there was a bite left that was very important. I mean, it was done so perfectly that I just believed in my heart that it was a signature. Tallahassee was enveloped in fear in January 1978, much like the way Gainesville would be 11 and a half years later when Danny Rowling murdered four University of Florida students and one Santa Fe college student during his rampage. Bundy left Tallahassee not long after the Chi Omega murders. He stole a van, which was owned by the university, and headed east. His presence wouldn't be felt again for another 24 days this time in Jacksonville. On the afternoon of February 8th, in a parking lot across from a high school, Bundy approached 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, who happened to be the daughter of the Jacksonville Police Department's chief of detectives. Bundy introduced himself as Richard Burton. He told her he was with the fire department. Around that time, Parmenter's older brother rolled up in his car. He confronted Bundy who immediately fled. While in Jacksonville, Bundy had purchased a large hunting knife. He drove 60 miles west to Lake City, where he was on the prowl for another female victim. Kimberly Leach was a 12-year-old student at Lake City Junior High. She had been summoned to her home room to pick up a purse she had left behind. After she walked out the door and walked across the basketball courts, Bundy approached her. He led her to his van and abducted her. She was never seen alive again. Authorities later said that knife Bundy purchased in Jacksonville was the weapon he used to kill Leach. Lake City was and is a stereotypical small southern town. It is located so close to the Georgia border that it more closely resembles Georgia than Florida. People from there have southern accents, thick ones. It's small in terms of geography as well as population. Today, the population is barely more than 12,000. 41 years ago, it was less than 10,000. A community like that is turned upside down when a schoolgirl gets abducted State troopers, Columbia County Sheriff's deputies, and volunteers combed the area around town looking for Kimberly Leach. But they had no luck. They had no clues. George Deakle was the lead prosecutor who tried Ted Bundy for the final time in January 1980. Deakle tried Bundy for the slang of Kimberly Leach. Here he is telling 2020 what one witness saw the day Leach was abducted. There was a firefighter who was coming home and he saw a man walking across the campus and had Kim by the arm and uh, he assumed that he was her father. Meanwhile, Bundy headed back toward Tallahassee. He had no money to pay his rent. He was driving a stolen van and police presence was thick around campus. He boldly and bravely stole a car, a Volkswagen Beetle, just like the one he drove when he was killing women in Washington State, and made his way to Pensacola, which is about 200 miles west of Tallahassee. On February 15, 1978, 46 days after his escape from a Colorado jail, Ted Bundy was arrested. Police arrested this 31-year-old man after a high-speed chase Wednesday morning in Pensacola, Florida. He claimed to be a Florida State University law student. 
Who is this man? He was arrested driving a stolen Tallahassee car and carrying 21 stolen credit cards, many of which belong to FSU co-eds. He refused to give his name to authorities and he resisted arrest with violence. Bundy was seen by a police officer driving slowly and erratically. When the officer attempted to pull him over, Bundy led him on a high-speed pursuit. Officer David Lee caught up to him and apprehended him. He discovered the car Bundy was driving was stolen, and he told Bundy he was under arrest. It was at that time that Bundy kicked the officer's legs and attempted to get away. Lee fired off two warning rounds, but Bundy kept running. Lee eventually tackled Bundy, who struggled with the officer and even tried to grab his gun. Lee was too strong for the 140-pound Bundy, and he subdued him by pistol-whipping him. Bundy told Lee a lot of things after the arrest, but one statement stuck out the most to Lee. The suspect told him, quote, I wish you had killed me. He also told the officer that he was likely to get a promotion for capturing him. Lee had no idea what he was talking about. For two days, nobody knew who the mysterious person was. He was in possession of a fake ID. He had stolen credit cards. He was driving a stolen car, and he had a litany of charges filed against him, but no name. The digital world we live in today was still a long way from forming during the late 1970s. Fax machines hadn't even been invented, so it was very possible for a wanted man to travel all the way from Colorado to the Florida Panhandle, commit more murders, and do so undetected. It was even possible for Bundy to remain in jail for 48 hours without anyone linking him to all he had done thousands of miles away. The docuseries on Netflix contains several newsreels that are more than 40 years old. Here is a courtroom clip from Bundy's very first court appearance following his arrest in Pensacola. At this point, his identity was still a mystery. He is entitled to a bond on these cases. Well, the bailing out, we don't even know who he is. Well, you won't tell us who he is. Who would be the principal of the bond? Your Honor, all I know is what they say. Now, I don't know whether he's given his name or not. Uh, he's certainly entitled to a bond in any event, I think. The Honorable Public Defender heard the man admit just now that he's not the person uh, whose name he gave, and he has failed to come forward with the correct name. The stolen Volkswagen was impounded, but it wasn't helpful to investigators. It wasn't used during any crimes, so it contained no evidence. Reports later came out that Bundy was peeping in the area of Pensacola, looking for another victim shortly before he was arrested. But no one other than Bundy ever entered that car after it was stolen. There was one discovery about that car that piqued everyone's interest. It was stolen not far from the Chi Omega house. Investigators from Tallahassee came to Pensacola and interviewed Bundy, who refused to give his name, but admitted he had stolen the car and credit cards in the vicinity of where the murders had occurred. Then he asked to make a phone call. That request was granted. The phone call Bundy made was to his ex-fiancee in Washington State, Elizabeth Klepfer. 
told him that he shouldn't be calling me, that my phone had a trap on it, and he said that he was in custody. And I asked him where, and he said Florida. And later in the conversation, he said, he repeated over and over again that this was really going to be bad when it broke, that it was not going to break until tomorrow morning and be in the press, but it was going to be really ugly. And I asked him if he was referring to the murders of some sorority girls in Florida, and he said that he wouldn't talk about it, and I told him that I had asked an FBI agent about those murders up here because I was concerned about them, and he didn't want to talk about it. After that call, Bundy admitted to authorities that he was, in fact, Theodore Robert Bundy. News of the arrest went national. It was very big news in the Pacific Northwest, Colorado, and, of course, Florida. In this clip, you hear a young woman being interviewed about Ted Bundy. She was a friend of his during his stay in Tallahassee. She went out to dinner with him. Amazingly, she almost sounded giddy when she described the time she spent with him. Frances Massey lived across the hall from Bundy and knew him as Chris. She said she was one of his few friends. What kind of person was he? Um, a quiet type person. Aloof and friendly. You talk to him? Yes, sometimes. Did you ever feel any fears being around him? No, not fear. When you talked to him, what would you talk about? Everyday stuff. Um, how he's how he's doing today and things like that. Well, to generalize a character in a living situation like that. You got out to dinner with him one time. And we went out to dinner once. That's, yeah. that, that's kind of... <laughs> Knowing what you know now, does that frighten you? Do you put that much trust in a person? Well, under the circumstances that we went out to dinner, it was pretty casual. And we trusted each other enough to go out to dinner, uh, just as friends do, go. Six weeks or so after Bundy's arrest, the body of Kimberly Leach was discovered. She was found in an abandoned pig pen in Sewanee County, one county west of Columbia County, where Lake City is located. Here again is George Deakle, a retired prosecutor in Florida's Third Judicial Circuit recalling his reaction to finding out that Leach had been discovered and how she was discovered. And uh, I had not cried in my entire adult life. I hadn't cried since I was a teenager. I cried the day we found Kim Leach's body. Bundy was easily linked to Leach. The stolen credit cards that were in his possession were used around Lake City, including one that was used for a hotel room stay less than three miles from the school where the girl was abducted. Hours after Bundy checked out of that hotel, Leach went missing. Back in Leon County, the sheriff, Ken Katsaris, made an unorthodox decision. He requested a warrant to have a dentist make impressions of Bundy's teeth. Katsaris believed Bundy's teeth, which were misaligned and chipped, would match perfectly to the bite marks that were left on Levy's buttocks. Here is Katsaris 
gleefully describing on the Netflix docuseries his encounter with Bundy when he confronted him with that warrant. One night, I did something unusual. I went to his cell and I said, Ted, you're coming with me. And he said, this is a changeup. This is different. I said, we're going for a ride. And I didn't go over real well. I believe he thought I was going to take him for a ride for which he would never return. That I was going to exercise some kind of authority as the sheriff to do him in. We transported him with a series of cars. And as we opened the back door to go up the stairway, the back entrance, doors swung open and there stood these three doctors, their white smocks on, and behind them was a dental chair. And he lost it. He didn't know that what I had was a bite mark from the crime scene, which I believed at the time was Ted Bundy's signature and we wanted to search any and all parts of his mouth, including his teeth. Well, he started screaming, you can't do this without my attorney. I said, oh yes, we can. Ted, we have a warrant and we're serving it on you. Then on the dime, his mindset changed like he was a different person. He looked at me, he turned around, he sat in the dental chair, he leaned back, put a smile on, and said, Ken, you know you don't need all that stuff. I'm not a violent person. Opened his mouth. He said, do what you have to do. The sheriff decided to give Bundy a taste of his own medicine. The man who previously never shied away from the camera, never passed up an opportunity to tell his story to a reporter, was about to be notified by his new nemesis, Sheriff Ken Katsaris, of his indictment for two charges of first-degree murder and three additional charges of attempted first-degree murder. Bundy, who almost never lost his composure while the cameras were rolling, started to crack. What do we have here, Ken? Let's see. You always say an indictment, all right? Why don't you read it to me? You're about it for election, aren't you? Mr. Mr. Bundy you got it, didn't you? Mr. Bundy you told me that you told him that you were going to get me. He said he was going to get me. Okay, you've got the indictment. It's all you're going to get. Let's read it. Let's go. Theodore Robert Bundy, you are charged. Indictment: two counts burglary, two counts murder in the first degree, three counts attempted murder in the first degree. Design or intent to affect the death of said Lisa Lee. My chance to talk to the press. Contrary to section 78204, Florida statute. I'll plead not guilty right now. Bundy was jailed in Leon County, but he wound up tried in Miami, almost 500 miles south of Tallahassee. His trial was scheduled for June 1979. Weeks before the trial in Miami, a pretrial hearing was held in Tallahassee. Leading up to that hearing, Bundy's court-appointed attorney had broached the idea to Bundy that he should plead guilty to first-degree murder in exchange for a life sentence. It was the best way to avoid the electric chair. That attorney came away from that meeting thinking Bundy was fine with him seeking a plea agreement. Then he got blindsided at the hearing. Bundy, once again, decided to put on a show for the media. It's my position that my counsel, one, believe that I am guilty, two, 
that they have told me they see no way of presenting effective defense, and in no uncertain terms they have told me that. And three, that they see no way of avoiding a conviction. Your Honor, if that does not raise itself to the level of ineffectiveness of counsel, I don't know what does. By showing up as attorney like that, it opened the door for Bundy to serve as his own attorney, which was what he wanted. Others would participate in his defense, but Bundy would play an active role. It did not help his situation. In Miami, early during the state's presentation of its evidence, one of the first officers who had arrived at the Chi Omega house, Ray Crew, was called to the stand. He was asked basic questions by the prosecutor. When it came time to cross-examine him, Bundy asked the witness to go into more detail about the bodies. How were they lying? What did the blood splatter look like? He asked Crew to describe the victim's injuries. Bundy encouraged the witness to look through his notes and be as specific as possible. It was eerie. It was like Bundy was relishing the gory details that were being described to jurors. Many of those jurors cut their eyes to Bundy while Crew described the scene. Bundy appeared energized. The trial could have ended there and Bundy would have been convicted. But there was more. There was the bite mark testimony. Today, such evidence probably wouldn't even be introduced. Forensic technology is so advanced that bite marks left on one's skin wouldn't make much of a dent in the state's case. Jurors today have higher expectations when it comes to forensic evidence. Bundy had left semen on the bed where at least one of the women had been murdered in the Chi Omega house. Had the murders been committed during the 90s, 2000s, or today, that would have been the scientific evidence linking him to the crime. But there was no capability to match anyone to a semen stain back in 1979. The state had to use what it had at its disposal back then, and those bite marks left on Levy's buttocks did show a pattern that matched Bundy's own teeth. At least that's what the jurors thought. There was also the testimony from Nita Neary. She was very confident on the stand. When she pointed out Ted Bundy in the courtroom and said he was the man she saw inside her sorority house, it was a dramatic moment in the trial. Here is a portion of that testimony, which was shown on a segment of the CBS Evening News. Nita, do you see the man that you saw at the door of the Cotton Lake House on January 15, 1978, in the courtroom today? Yes, I believe I do. Could you point him out, please? At that moment, when Neary began to point at the defendant, the defense attorney objected. But moments later, Neary said she was sure that Bundy was the man. I've had to go over this again and again and again in my mind. And I feel positive in my identification. Bundy's unpredictable behavior disrupted the trial more than a few times. He tested the patience of the judge. Circuit Judge Edward Cowart became agitated one morning when the defendant failed to show up for court on time. He had plugged the lock on his jail cell with wet, balled-up toilet paper so that the guards couldn't get him out of his cell. When Bundy finally showed up, he started complaining about the treatment he was getting at the Dade County Jail. Cowart didn't care for his tone or his hand gestures. Here is part of that exchange. 
since I have been in Dade County, I have been allowed to shake your finger at me. Don't shake your finger at me, young man. Of one and one half hours. That's fine. You can shake it at Mr. Haggard. He probably, he probably deserves it better than you. Oftentimes, just like you heard there, Bundy would find a way to bring levity to a situation that never called for it. Even the judge was captivated by him. It was like Coward was admiring the defendant. There comes a time when I just have to say, whoa. If you say whoa, I'm going to be using spurs and overcome that whoa. Giddy at You bet. <laughs> and this court is going to proceed on schedule. Bless your heart. I just hope you stay with us. And if you don't, we'll miss you. All right? In the end, Bundy was convicted. During the penalty phase, as he was addressing the judge, he continued to insist he was innocent. I'm not asking for mercy, for I find it somewhat absurd to ask for mercy for something I did not do. So I will be tortured for and will suffer for and receive the pain for that act, but I will not share the burden for the guilt. Jurors recommended a death sentence. Coward followed their recommendation. This court, independent of, but in agreement with, the advisory sentence rendered by the jury does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant Theodore Robert Bundy. In an amazing twist, Cowart addressed Bundy, complimenting him. Take care of yourself, young man. Thank you. I, I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It's a tragedy for this court to see that such a total waste, I think, of humanity that I've experienced in this court. You're a bright young man. You made a good lawyer. I'd love to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. Then the judge told Bundy to take care and that he harbored no animosity toward him. The same could not be said of George Deakle, the prosecutor in the Third Judicial Circuit, who was awaiting his turn at Bundy, a man he could not have detested more. Six months after Bundy's sentencing, Deakle would get his shot at him. Bundy was tried in Orlando for the murder of Kimberly Leach. He was convicted again and sentenced to death again. The judge in that case did not wish him well. Easily the most memorable part of that trial was Bundy proposing to his girlfriend at the time, Carol Ann Boone, a woman he knew from his days in Washington State. During his questioning of her during the penalty phase of the trial, he asked her to marry him. She said yes. Bundy then declared to the court that they were legally married, which at the time was accepted. A notary public was there, so it was just like any groom and bride exchanging vows, at least in the legal sense. Twenty months later, the couple had a daughter. Death row inmates were not allowed to have conjugal visits, but the guards at the time could be bribed, and Bundy apparently bribed them. Carol Ann Bundy did not stay with her husband until the end. She eventually stopped believing in his innocence and stopped visiting him. She and her daughter relocated and have lived private lives. Coming up, I talk about Bundy's execution. You'll hear more from John Tanner, 
as well as Ocala Star Banner reporter Joe Callahan, who, while a reporter in Lake City, covered Bundy's execution. Earlier in this podcast, I mentioned Anne Rule and her book on Bundy, The Stranger Beside Me. What made that book such a standout true crime novel is that Rule had befriended Ted Bundy before his reputation had caught up to him. Their friendship even continued after his first arrest. She exchanged letters with him, chatted with him on the phone, and even had lunch with him while he was out on bail. During the early 1970s, Rule, who was an ex-police officer, worked with Bundy at a suicide hotline. That's how they met. Rule would later write that Bundy was so handsome, well-mannered, and charismatic that she pictured her daughter dating him if her daughter had been older. The Washington Post wrote this about Rule's friendship with Bundy. This friendship between a great crime writer and her greatest subject was as unlikely as it was fated. The equivalent of Bob Woodward sharing a schoolyard seesaw with Richard Nixon. Did Rule ever fear Ted Bundy? Did she ever look back and think how lucky she was that she wasn't one of his victims? She fielded those kinds of questions a lot. Here is what she told one journalist in Seattle during a televised interview. His victims had to be someone he didn't know. He told Bob Keppel, the, the detective, the detective, the yeah, detective. once that uh, if he talked to them, a woman for more than 20 minutes, then she was no good as a victim because he, victims had to just be objects. He didn't want to have any emotional connection. Um, so I probably was as safe as in my mother's arms. Also, he liked slender co-eds with long dark hair parted in the middle. Well, I haven't been slender since I was four. <laughs> and Anne Rule wrote 35 non-fiction books and one crime fiction novel. Nothing in her catalog was as memorable as The Stranger Beside Me, which inspired a television movie in 1986 starring Mark Harmon, who played Bundy. Rule died in 2015. Another book on Bundy that was separated from the pack was a book written by Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth titled Ted Bundy, Conversations with a Killer. The former interviewed Ted Bundy during the better part of a year while Bundy was on death row. The audio tapes from those interviews were the basis for the Ted Bundy docuseries on Netflix called Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy Tapes. Mashad talks mostly negatively about his encounters with Bundy. He told Vice in a recent interview that he doesn't carry around those experiences 24-7, but nonetheless, Bundy still sticks with him all these years later. After so many conversations, the two of them got comfortable enough to taunt each other from time to time. Bundy once told Mashad that he could have made a good serial killer himself, Mashad countered that one day by telling Bundy that his celebrity status had peaked so much that he should consider doing endorsements. Maybe he could sell crowbars, one of his weapons of choice. Bundy looked at him and said, quote, No, I want to do socks. Socks, as it turned out, was something Bundy had a fetishistic thing for. 
Bundy described to Mashad how he would shoot the commercial. The camera would focus in on him, standing and leaning forward with his hands on some cell bars, and he'd say to the camera, Hello, I'm Ted Bundy. I'm going to wear my Burlingtons to my execution. Mashad told the Vice interviewer that he was so creeped out by that conversation that he never bought Burlingtons again. The conversations John Tanner had with Bundy were mostly friendly. Some were deep. Some were breezy. Bundy, Tanner felt, was always open and honest with him. He wasn't putting on a show, but rather coming to grips with all he had done. Tanner and his wife came away thinking Bundy was smart, not necessarily genius level, but definitely smart. He was easy to talk to. He was complimentary, generous, and at times even affectionate. Both Tanner and his wife made a conscious effort not to educate themselves too much on Bundy's crimes. They were there for a purpose, to provide spiritual counseling. He was quick, quick-witted, enjoyed humor, a pleasant person to be with. You had to, in effect, block off what you knew he had done to uh, even stomach being around him, of course. My wife and I had never read in detail, you know, the, the, the graphic books uh, that described his killings. Uh, we may not have been able to do what we did if we had. All things considered, Tanner never exited Florida State Prison with a rosy picture of the condemned killer. What Bundy had done was always at the forefront of Tanner's mind. Bundy was, you know, as horrible a sinner as we can imagine. I mean, my gosh, he was a serial, a brutal, worse than animalistic serial killer. It, it, it just doesn't get much worse than that. He wound up killing a child there at the end, I think. So he's the worst of the worst. Bundy is right there at the top with, with horror and uh, depravity and sin. Tanner, who just before Bundy was executed had been newly elected as state attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit, tried pulling all the strings he could to delay Bundy's execution. He did so not because he felt compassion for him, but because Bundy was finally ready, now that all of his appeals had been denied, to confess to everything. Tanner didn't make any progress. Governor Bob Martinez signed Bundy's death warrant. But it wasn't a garden-variety death warrant. Martinez sought to accelerate the process. Bundy was given seven days, not 30 days, which was typically how long such a warrant went into effect. First of all, Ted Bundy, seven days is an awful short time for a death warrant. Why is that? It's almost 11 years the crime was committed, so I don't consider it to be short at all. And uh, I believe the uh, death warrant was properly signed and that justice needs to prevail and it should take place uh, next Tuesday. His lawyers are saying that seven days is a travesty that doesn't give them adequate time to prepare new appeals. They've had 11 years to prepare appeals. It's not the first time I've used a seven-day uh, limit, and it's their job to get the work done. At a more formal press conference, Martinez addressed the attempts being made by Bundy's attorney as well as Tanner to delay the execution. The governor gave a full explanation why he was not inclined to give Bundy any additional time. This morning there's been a uh, series of uh, telephone calls that we want to respond to, of which I've given response to, and this has to do with uh, Ted Bundy. Uh, where we had inquiry by his civil attorney, Diana Weiner, 
and also by the Seventh Circuit State Attorney John Tanner. And uh, we have sent word back to each of these individuals that the rendezvous with electric chair will be on next Tuesday at 7 o'clock in the morning. And that uh, I have instructed Richard Duggar earlier this morning to make certain that uh, Ted Bundy and those that represent him and those that wish to talk to him, to him have all the time that uh, can be provided between now and 7 a.m. on Tuesday next. Uh, we're not going to have the system manipulated uh, in terms of trying to extend time uh, by now wanting to talk to law enforcement people that he toyed with for years as they try to gain information from him. So that uh, our answer to each of these requests is no. Martinez went on to say, quote, you don't negotiate with a murderer. You don't negotiate with a killer. For him to be negotiating for his life over the bodies of victims is despicable. On the eve of his death, Ted Bundy gave a videotaped interview with James Dobson, a well-known evangelical leader, during which Bundy confessed to the murders he was linked to. For the record, you are guilty of killing many women and girls. Yes, yes, that's true. During his conversation with Dobson, Bundy gave what he thought would be a revelatory interview. He blamed his proclivities on pornography. More specifically, he claimed that his exposure to hardcore porn at a young age led to his criminal behavior as an adult. Here is Bundy in his own words talking to Dobson about this. Tears welled up in his eyes during this portion of the interview. Listen, I'm no social scientist and I haven't done a survey. I mean, I I don't pretend that I know what John Q. Citizen thinks about this. But I've lived in prison for a long time now. And I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me. And without exception, every one of them was deeply involved in pornography without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by an addiction to pornography. There's no question about it. The FBI's own study on serial homicide shows that the most common interest among serial killers is pornography. Many people have rejected Bundy's claims that pornography led to his sadistic behavior. They point to how available pornography is today and how the homicide rate has decreased. There also hasn't been an increase in the number of serial killers. Tanner, however, believed then, as he does now, that pornography very easily could have damaged Bundy psychologically. I believe it played a role in uh, his behavior it's you know I, I think there are a few documented things about pornography that i think most everyone agrees on if they've looked at it looked at these studies uh it's very addictive it's one of those things that uh, when you begin to consume it regularly it uh those images are just imprinted and it's very difficult to, to um, ever get that i think out of your system so to speak Bundy's pending execution was big news. It was national news. 
It has come down to this, an emergency request to the U.S. Supreme Court for a stay of execution in the case of Theodore Bundy has been rejected this evening. The vote was five to four. Bundy is scheduled to die in Florida's electric chair tomorrow morning at seven. There may still be some last-ditch legal maneuvers that could cause yet another delay in the execution, including an appeal for clemency to the governor of Florida. But just by way of background, since 1925 in Florida, there have been 202 appeals for clemency, and only six have been granted. And Governor Bob Martinez, who will have to make that clemency decision on Ted Bundy, has already indicated that he wants the execution to take place. Martinez predictably granted no clemency to Bundy. Before he was set to be executed, Bundy asked Tanner and his wife not to be there to watch him die. The last visit the couple had with Bundy was one Tanner hasn't forgotten. We spent the uh, last evening for his execution. He had told both of us that he did not want us to come to the execution. Uh, we could have been named as witnesses and we would have been there. And he said, I don't want you there. He said, there's no reason. At the outset, he said, you know, he said, it's okay to miss me. And if you're a little sad, he said, I'll feel complimented. He said, but but we Christians don't mourn like people that don't know. He said, so don't mourn me as if I'm lost. Uh, and, and then, to our surprise, uh, she, Marcia, and I were there and at a very small table in a little interview room that they have uh, up there next to the death cell. And uh, they let us visit him the last evening. He asked us to be one of his last visitors. Uh, we came in, and he had his Bible open to the uh, the, the communion sacraments, and uh, we sat down. And we, there was a guard behind me. There was a guard behind my wife. There was a guard behind Bundy. With it, we're all facing each other at this little table, and uh, one guard standing kind of on the other side of the table, and they watched us make sure we weren't giving him a poison capsule or something. He had a flat Coke, it was a Coke in a paper cup, and he had a piece of stale bread. And he read the Holy Communion sacraments out loud, and, and we went through Holy Communion with Ted Bundy ministering the communion to us, the bread and the uh, flat Coke, which took the place of the wine. In addition to their face-to-face -face meetings, Bundy and Tanner exchanged many letters. In one of those letters, Bundy conveyed how close he had gotten to the Tanners. He closed one of his last letters to you by writing, quote, uh, and I'll just quote this very quickly, I feel God's sure. presence. I feel him guiding me. I feel him working in our lives and our friendship, referring to you. Your influence yeah. has been crucial. I love you, brother. Did he really love you like that? Do you, do you feel that way? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he physically, he would physically embrace me and, and my wife. You know, we'd come see him and we'd shake hands and then we'd, you know, he'd give us a big hug. Yeah, we, uh, we grew close to him. We at no time thought he shouldn't be executed. And there was no time that he didn't really agree that the day was coming that he should, should be executed. He just didn't want it any sooner than uh, necessary, so to speak. Tanner's association with Bundy, doubled with his very public fight against pornography, resulted in a re-election loss in 1992. 
However, in 1996, he reclaimed his seat and served another three terms as state attorney for the Seventh Judicial Circuit. While state attorney, he prosecuted several notorious killers, including a few I have profiled on this podcast. They include Troy Victorino, Jeffrey and Anthony Farina, and Royley McDuffie. Tanner also prosecuted America's most infamous female serial killer, Eileen Warnos, who was executed by lethal injection in 2002. Tanner pointed out to me that he always felt compassion for those he prosecuted during his career, even those he helped send to death row. I, as you know, I personally tried many capital murder cases, and I, you know, I, I through the courtroom, I put put Eileen Warnos, uh, you know, on death row. Uh, I prayed for every single killer that I prosecuted. I prayed for every single killer that I obtained the death sentence for, that God would somehow reach them and be merciful. My human self thought they should die and go to hell, but every sinner, every sinner, according to Christian teaching, is not admissible to hell except through the blood and power of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The scene at Florida State Prison in Rayford the morning of January 24th, 1989, was unique. There are always people outside the facility, often anti-death penalty advocates. Those people showed up on that day, but they were outnumbered by a significant margin by those who were celebrating Bundy's death. Joe Callahan covered the execution for the Lake City Reporter. His co-worker watched the execution from inside, but Callahan got to see all of the riffraff taking place outside. He hasn't forgotten much of what he saw or heard that day, more than 30 years ago. Vendor selling t-shirts. One of them was uh, uh, one that I think a lot of people captured on uh, in photographs of a guy with a Ronald Reagan mask that had uh, Burn Bundy, a uh, white shirt on, said Burn Bundy holding a, uh, a toy ra- stuffed animal rabbit with a noose around its neck. Uh, I mean, that, that just gives you the bizarre uh, nature of it all. There was barbecue, people selling barbecue. Students from FSU were there tailgating. There was one guy selling shirts that read Tuesday is Friday. Fry was spelled F-R-Y. Small pins in the shape of the chair, referred to as Old Sparky, were being sold for five bucks apiece. People were singing songs and letting out cheers. It was a very weird scene. In spite of the intensity among those advocating for Bundy's death, they didn't show any aggression toward the smaller group of death penalty opponents. And that group may have been outnumbered and surrounded, but the members of one group left the other alone and vice versa. Here is Callahan talking to me about that. And then you had like a small group of about 40 or 50 people that were there against the death penalty doing a candlelight vigil in the middle of all of this. Um, Was there any hostility aimed toward them? Actually not, not that I remember. I really don't remember. It's like everybody... You know, unlike it is today sometimes, everybody had their own opinions doing their own thing and nobody really minded what the others were doing. Bundy's head was shaved when he was led into the gas chamber, 
a regular practice back in the days when Florida electrocuted its death row inmates. Bundy was strapped into the chair. He was asked whether he had any final words, and he said, quote, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. A leather strap was tightened across his chin. A metal cap was placed on his head, and then a black hood was placed over that. The prison superintendent spoke to Governor Martinez over the phone. The call ended, and then the signal was given. The switch was flipped. Here is prosecutor George Deakle, who witnessed the execution, describing what he saw next. As the electricity coursed through his body, you could see his fist tighten with the thumb between the two fingers. And I remember thinking at that time, I wonder how many throats that fist has tightened around. Bundy was pronounced dead at 7.16 a.m. I'm ashamed to admit that I was elated. I hope I'm never that happy over the death of another human being ever again. Outside the prison, the action stopped when it appeared as though the electricity was surging through Bundy. Here again is Joe Callahan. I remember the lights dimming at the prison and how everybody gasped when that happened. And then it went right back to the rockets kind of atmosphere and then it was all cheers when the, a white hearse pulled away with his body in it. When it came time for him to leave, Callahan was in a fog. He realized what he had just witnessed was something he'd probably never see again. I left there feeling kind of numb about what did I just witness? I'm not, I'm not even sure what I just witnessed. I mean, to see that kind of celebration for a death was it made me feel kind of confused inside. I understood why he was one of the most notorious killers who killed a lot of people. He killed at least 35, I think, or, uh, but it, he's probably killed a lot more than that. But this one was a 12-year-old girl that he was sentenced to death for. And that in itself was horrifying. And In the end, 36 slings were confirmed to have been committed by Bundy. Those murders occurred in Washington, Oregon, California, Utah, Idaho, Colorado, and Florida. Authorities suspect he committed many, many more, possibly more than 100. For instance, Bundy remains a strong suspect in the slaying of two females in South Jersey, near Philadelphia. They were killed in 1969, while Bundy was attending Temple University. There has been such a renewed interest lately in Ted Bundy. A film about the serial killer starring Zac Efron is scheduled to be released in the fall, in time for next year's award season. Netflix paid $9 million recently for the rights to stream it. The film, titled Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, is directed by the same man who directed the docuseries on Netflix that debuted on the streaming service last month. Many people have condemned Netflix, Hollywood, and others for what they consider a glorification of such a twisted man. Journalist Tim Suarez, who witnessed Bundy's execution, wrote a guest column in the Daily Beast, which was posted last week. He laid out his disapproval of all the latest movies and articles being made about Ted Bundy. 
Swarens called Bundy a cruelly manipulative narcissist. He added that Bundy practiced necrophilia on several of his victims and kept severed heads of others as trophies. Above all, he conveyed his hatred about how Bundy is being made out as, quote, charming and sexy. John Tanner, who spoke to me twice over the phone from Hawaii when I interviewed him for this podcast, said this when he reflected about Bundy and his crimes. And and the fact, you know, the fact the Lord gave me an opportunity to spend, gave us the opportunity to spend time with, with a person who's done the most horrendous of things and to believe that God has the grace to forgive someone like that is still beyond my conception. I, I don't think if I were God, I could forgive Ted Bundy or would even want to. James Dobson's video interview with Bundy was copied and sold on VHS. Today, people don't look at that interview fondly, considering how Dobson used it as part of the propaganda machine against pornography that he helped create and kept running for years. Bundy was probably putting on an act through much of that interview, like he often did. But there did seem to be one moment of sincerity from Bundy. He was asked to share his thoughts about being hours away from his death. It was something he was visibly scared of. Listen, it's no fun. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it gets kind of lonely. And yet... I have to remind myself that every one of us uh, will go through this someday in one way or another and and countless uh, millions who have walked this earth before us have so this is just an experience which we all share yeah here I am thank you for listening tune in next week when I will discuss the murder of Mike Williams who went missing in December 2000 after he left his Tallahassee home to go duck hunting in Lake Seminole. Williams was unaware that his wife and best friend were involved in a torrid love affair. They conspired to kill him. But no one was convicted of that crime until earlier this month. That's because for years, Williams' death was considered an accident. My guest next week will be Tallahassee Democrat News Director Jennifer Portman. Please join us Monday. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.